Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, Sarah Ivory. Today, obscenity and Jews. Jews and obscenity. The idea that they go together trades in long-held stereotypes about Jews as oversexed. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but here it goes. This is not true. That said, it is true that Jews in America have been very well represented in making and defending obscenity for more than 100 years. Why is that? Are Jews less prudish than everyone else? Do they have a higher stake in fights about free speech? Today, we turn for answers to Josh Lamberg. Josh is a professor of English, and he is a frequent contributor to Tablet Magazine. He tackles this question about the connections between Jews and obscenity in a new book. His book is called Unclean Lips, and Josh joins us today on Vox Tablet to talk about it. Before we get started, though, a warning. This podcast contains adult language and content. Now then, Josh Lambert, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thanks so much for having me. Josh, when I first came across your book on Jews and obscenity, I thought right away of Lenny Bruce, of Sarah Silverman. Both of them famously reveled in, or in Sarah Silverman's case, she's still alive, she still revels in the use of four-letter words. If you're selfish and you're thoughtless and you're broken and you're heartless, you're probably not a diva, you're a cunt. But your book is much less about these public performances of obscenity and more about a long history of American Jews coming to the defense of obscenity as lawyers, as judges, as publishers, editors, and so forth. Is that – do I have that right? Absolutely. You know, I'm a fan of Lenny Bruce too and I, and I love Sarah Silverman and I just – as I just wrote about her. Um, but I got into the topic because I was a fan of Philip Roth and because I saw, you know, a real obsession uh, in his work with – Jews and with sex over and over again in this in this really intense way, and I as I started to read more uh, American Jewish literature and more of the classic works that represented Jews in American culture, I started to think, you know, what's up with this? Like, why why do we keep seeing these two themes come together in this intense way? And I started to to look into and ask myself the questions of, you know, how did we get Lenny Bruce? How did we get there? How did we how did the law start to allow for that kind of performance to be possible? And that led me back to a whole set of stories, you know, predating Lenny by, you know, 70 years. You make the argument that one reason why Jews were so quick to take up the cause of obscenity had to do, in fact, with fighting anti-Semitism. How would those two be related? This was one of the most interesting things that I found and, and to some degree most surprising to me. So when you go back and look at where the obscenity laws come from in America – uh, you get you find this figure, Anthony Comstock, who is this late 19th century anti-vice crusader. And he was the one who pushed through these laws uh, protecting us, so to speak, against uh, dirty words and representations of sex. And as I read more about him, I saw that it's not that he was such a virulent anti-Semite, but certainly this was a time at which lots of sort of the elites in Protestant American culture were a little freaked out by all these Jewish immigrants and what they were doing. Uh, Comstock arrested and chased down lots of Jewish abortionists and people producing um, uh, contraceptive devices, condoms and things like that. Um, what interested me as I, as I looked into the book and I found out more was 
the ways in which um, some of there, – there are these incredible works of American literature that uh, represent Jews in these very disturbingly sexual ways. Um, but that aren't really anti-Semitic documents, and I was I was I was interested to find out about some of them, like um, uh, Theodore Dreiser's play, The Hand of the Potter. Let's talk about that play. What is the Hand of the Potter? How is it received? How is it not what uh, people thought it was at first? So this is an amazing an amazing work of literature. You know, totally uh, astounding when you look at it. It's a four act play, uh, uh, pub- first published in 1919. Uh, about uh, the main character is Isidore Bershansky, and he's a Jewish young Jewish man who is a pedophile. There's no two ways about it. He's just gotten out of jail for having raped children, and the play begins with him coming back to his parents' house and being obsessed with the idea of raping 11-year-old girls. It's just like so disturbing, so unpleasant, um, and written by an incredibly major American author, Theodore Dreiser, who had had you know, uh, a big success with Sister Carrie at the turn of the century um, and was really thought of as as one of the major figures of his period. And you think like, how could someone even write something like this? Why would uh, anyone want to read or perform a play like this? Um, and it gets inter- more interesting when you know that Dreiser had lots of Jewish friends, that the actual publisher of this play was a major Jewish publisher. You think like, what what's going on with this? Um, and what uh, what I what I learned as I read more about it was that um, what Dreiser was doing was responding to a big scandal that had happened. A few years before he wrote the play, there had been a case of a young Jewish man in New York City who had um, been accused of uh, raping and killing a young uh, Gentile girl. And this, this had been front page news all across the country, hundreds of, of newspaper articles about it uh, everywhere across America. And what Dreiser was trying to do is find a way to talk about this so that it wouldn't be just another oh those those filthy Jews and their pedophilia, um, <laughs> but find some way to explain how this young man had gotten into this bad situation and what it was about him. And of course, what Dreiser relied on to do that was Freudian psychology, right? Understanding that there are uh, 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 there's a whole passage in the play about hormones and how if you have an imbalance of your hormones, you are you can become sexually sick. So he wasn't trying to you know accuse this uh, or or heap you know, heap accusation onto this figure. He was trying to explain it in a scientific way. And once you understand that, you understand why people like uh, Ludwig Lewison, who was one of the major Jewish figures at the time, or Abe Kahn, the editor of the Forverts, um, really loved the play and, and, and wrote, uh, wrote in praise of it. But when the play was first published and performed, uh, the reception was not so positive. What were some of the uh, remarks that were, what were some of the charges that were uh, lodged against it? Oh, well, I mean, like almost any of the works that I end up talking about in the book, uh, when you look at the early reception of them, you see lots of very visceral uh, negative responses. You see people saying, this is trash, this is garbage. Uh, Dreiser sent that play to H.L. Mencken, the great um, and, and anti-censorship figure, uh, who said, it's terrible, burn it, or throw it, behind, you know, throw it behind the clock and never show it to anyone ever again. Um, Dreiser's publisher, uh, a really interesting uh, early Jewish publisher named uh, Horace Livright, uh, basically didn't want to publish it at all and only did it because Dreiser was so important to him and he felt like he couldn't let Dreiser down. Uh, so people uh, – there was a reviewer in Chicago who said uh, Dreiser should be put in a psychiatric ward uh, basically because the work was so insane and disgusting. If we sort of pan back beyond Dreiser though, how does taking up the cause of obscenity fight anti-Semitism? So there are a couple different ways and it depends on what time we're interested – what period we're interested in. 
Um, one of the ways in which it did, and this is this is connected to what Dreiser was doing, is that there w- people might not be aware of the degree to which sexual anti-Semitism was a real problem. That there were beliefs about Jews being sexually rapacious, being uh, having these tendencies towards hypersexuality that were really circulating in the late 19th century and were a big part of the European anti-Semitism, modern European anti-Semitism that came to America. Um, and part of that anti-Semitism was both the idea that that uh, Jews were uh, disproportionately involved in prostitution, that they published dirty works, that they spoke in a dirty way. And so on all those levels, um, turning to a scientific approach, embracing kind of Freudian uh, perspectives on sexuality were ways to exculpate Jews from those kinds of uh, accusations. But um, you can actually see it working a little bit differently as you fast forward a few decades, um, uh, I, I don't think it's so surprising to people to, to, for me to say that uh, Nazi anti-Semitism had real claims about Jews' sexuality, right? That Jews were seen as sexually deviant or aberrant. Um, and as you look at the ways that Americans were responding to those kinds of claims as they were made in the 30s and 40s, um, you, you see a, a, a variety of different ways in which American Jews become involved in this fight against obscenity as a way of rejecting uh, Nazi ideas about um, about Jews and about sex. So, um, and this 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 actually really varies uh, widely in terms of how people uh, reacted to it because the Nazi sexuality in itself was so complicated and and took so many different forms. Um, but you have examples ranging from. Um, this wonderful book by Gershon Legman called Love and Death uh, from the late 40s, which is an argument against American censorship laws uh, that uses uh, the Holocaust and other uh, kinds of uh, uh, genocidal activities as evidence for why we need uh, to loosen uh, obscenity laws. And you also have um, uh, in the post-war decades, uh, and this is this is this is clear why this would be the case. Uh, American lawyers are very much committed to the idea that minority discourse deserves protection, right? That what the Nazis' crime was in some degree was to limit the rights of what minorities could say. And part of the fight uh, uh, for free speech uh, became a defense of minority rights. And when you see um, so many Jewish lawyers and judges uh, speaking out uh, against obscenity prosecutions in the uh, late 40s and 50s, you it's not very hard to draw connect the dots between their experiences observing the war and their feeling about uh, minority rights. In Unclean Lips, in the book, you also see a perhaps less noble motivation in some defenses of obscenity, and that is obscenity cells or smut cells, if we want to be really crude about it. What examples of that phenomenon did you come across in your research? Right, that's absolutely true, and actually, it's been known. That's been known to be the case since the ancient Greeks. Right, Every, everyone has always known that banned works and works that are uh, sexually uh, emphatic are uh, marketplace successes. And for that reason, actually, I'm not that interested in just you know general generally people who uh, turn to obscenity to make money because I didn't find much evidence that Jews were more interested in making money from obscenity. Uh, than from anything else, you know, Jews like anybody else in America like to make money, and they found ways to do it. Um, what I found more interesting, actually, was sort of the opposite case, which was Jews who had money who found that obscenity was a good way to turn money into prestige, which is a really counterintuitive thing when you think about it. But um, when you look at the publishers, uh, you know, and, and people may not be that familiar that some of the major publisher publishing houses in America were founded by Jews in the years after World War II. Uh, 
Random House, uh, Simon & Schuster, uh, Viking Press, you know, things like that. Um, and when you look at uh, those, uh, who those, who the people were who, who founded those publishing houses, they were usually second or third generation American Jews who came from very wealthy families. Their fathers or grandfathers had made tons and tons of money. But this was a time when you there there were still quotas against Jews in universities. Um, there were still certainly tons of social clubs and social opportunities that were just closed to Jews. You just couldn't get um, access to being in the aristocratic circles. And one of the ways that uh, Jews, re- some of these uh, literarily minded Jews, realized they could make themselves into cultural heroes was by defending major authors who. Uh, were too expensive for other publishing houses to publish. James Joyce, D.H. Lawrence, uh, these guys were famous and beloved all across the world, but every publisher knew that if you wanted to publish a book like Ulysses or a book like Lady Chatterley's Lover, you were going to have to put up hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees to protect the book. Um, so you uh, you saw old line publishers, the sort of gentleman uh, wasp publishers that were established in the 19th century, saying like, nah, we're not going to bother uh, uh, doing that kind of work. The people who stepped in to do it were people like Bennett Cerf at Random House who published James Joyce's Ulysses, got it. Uh, got it passed by the courts and made it into a huge sensation. Um, uh, there's a, a, a now mostly forgotten publisher named Thomas Seltzer who became uh, D.H. Lawrence's publisher in America. And his wife, Adele Seltzer, wrote this, writes this letter where she says, it's amazing that we get to publish D.H. Lawrence. He's like one of the most famous authors in the world. And the only reason – it's not because we outmaneuvered anyone. It's not because – uh, of anything else. It's just because we we wanted to do it and we're willing to fight for his right to publish what he wants. So there's this amazing way in which uh, these Jewish publishers were able to say we're the real heroes. They, they got to turn themselves into heroes of, of this uh, cultural moment. And that was really important to them at a time when they couldn't necessarily – uh, rise in their prestige without some sort of uh, some sort of help. You go in yet another direction in the book, and you offer close readings of literature in which the author, maybe on purpose, maybe unconsciously, seems to use obscenity to grapple with Jewish ideas not only about sex but about adoption, about conversion, contraception, and so forth. I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about this one novel that you bring up, Adele Wiseman's Crackpot. It's from 1974 in that context. I don't think most of our listeners are familiar with it or at least I was not familiar with it until I read your book. No, absolutely. It's a it's a wonderful novel and I'm I'm you know, I'm hopeful that one thing I can do in the book is just get people to read it. But the story I'll tell is that when I went to grad school, my advisor, uh, a woman named Anita Norwich, uh, heard that I was from Canada and she just mentioned offhand, oh, well, the, the one novel I really love, my favorite novel that I really wish people would talk more about is Adele Wiseman's Crackpot. So I said, okay, I'll go, I'll go off and read it. And it's this really wonderful but really perplexing novel about an obese Jewish prostitute in Winnipeg. Canada, and it's many hundreds of pages of her prostitution activities, and it climaxes with this awful, truly awful, brutal scene in which she's been the the neighborhood prostitute for years, and uh, she has a child of the father of which she doesn't know who it is, and she gives that 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 child up to an orphanage. Years later, the, the kid grows up, and he comes to her because she's still the neighborhood prostitute. They have sex before she figures it out. But then she figures out that this kid, this client of hers, is her own son. And she has to decide whether she's going to have sex with him. And then she does. And she has sex with him you know, as much as he wants to uh, through the end of the novel. And it's like 
brutal wow. and uncomfortable and disturbing. And you know, my advisor had told me to read this, and I'm, you know, trying to trying to figure <laughs> it's out. It's a subtext, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm trying to figure out like what like what is this novel about? Like why? What sense does this make? It's it's so uh, painful to read. Um, and the reading, you know, that I that I come up with, what I what I was trying to what I tried to think about was what was going on. Why were Jewish? What were Jewish writers doing once the law changed? And you really could write about sex in clinical ways, in explicit ways. Um, what were Jewish writers doing? And you know, my reading of the novel Portnoy's Complaint is that it's not just a you know sex comedy in the vein of the you know of a of a Judd Apatow movie. Um, that the masturbation in Portnoy is really about something. It's about this sort of confusion about how do you uh, what do you do as a Jew in the modern world? How do you uh, uh, how do you solve this problem of um, either you are uh, going to just marry a Jewish girl and you're going to reproduce what your parents did and it's going to be parochial and it's going to be uh, limited and it's going to be closed-minded or you go out and chase, as Portnoy says, shiksas, as non-Jewish women, um, and you reject your your childhood. Masturbation seems to be Portnoy's strange middle ground. It's something that is connected to uh, his incest fantasies and it's something that keeps him from fathering a, a child that's going to cause other sorts of problems. Um, and what we get in Crackpot, the way that I that I uh, end up reading that is that there's this strange sense of um, what that what that character Hoda does in embracing her son is to say that she's going to accept the difficulty, the tension of uh, being within the Jewish community. Right? That what what incest always represents is being too close to your family, and that's what. Um, Jews were sort of grappling with in the 60s and 70s, especially, you know, college kids, uh, as uh, as it was starting to seem like if you only dated Jewish people or if you were only going to be around Jewish people, that was uncomfortable and racist. It seems like what Wiseman is doing is uh, really uh, fi- trying to find a way to make that choice seem as uncomfortable as possible, but still make it, still say it's worth uh, committing to Jewishness, to Jewish identity, even if it means um, transgressing this kind of strange taboo. You mentioned in an earlier conversation that we had that people seem to think of Yiddish in particular as being uniquely salty. Is that the case? This is something that um, uh, has often been felt uh, while uh, especially native speakers of the language or people who are are, uh, uh, scholars of the language will tell you, no, every language has the same amount of filth in it. There's no – there's no – a language that's dirtier than any other. What is really interesting about Yiddish is that in American culture, it was less often censored. That's what I've found in, in doing the research, that um, there just aren't a lot of cases where people were um, arrested for or works were censored if they were in Yiddish. There's an amazing number of cases where a Yiddish work uh, circulated totally normally in America. Then it was translated into English, and boom, the people go to jail. The most famous was uh, Sholem Ash's play uh, "Gott von der Koma," um, the God of Vengeance, which uh, you know was played in Yiddish m- multiple times in America. Some people complained about it; people didn't like it. It's a it's set in a brothel. There's a lesbian scene in it. It was played in Chicago and New York in 1907 and 1908. Then it goes up on Broadway in 1922, and the whole cast and director are are put in jail for obscenity. Um, and the uh, what you what you, what I conclude from this, what I've been able to find, is that uh, the the main difference between Yiddish and English in America was just that um, it was very hard to find Yiddish speaking 
cops and um, obscenity, anti-obscenity crusaders, uh, you could occasionally find it. So, you know, when Lenny was arrested, when Lenny Bruce was arrested in L.A. Um, and uh, the charges included him, him using Yiddish obscenities, it was because there just happened to be a Yiddish police officer in the audience one night who could um, testify against him. Uh, but the, the truth is the la- there's, it's nothing about the, uh, the language itself or the essence of the language. It's just about how the government and the, and the law treated it. And the obscenity he was using was schmuck. Yeah, words like uh, schmuck and putz, which um, you know, I, I'll, I guess we warned everybody that the, there'd be dirty language. Um, <laughs> it seems so mild nowadays. <laughs> well, that, that's the amazing thing. So what, I, what I've been able to – what I looked for and found is that uh, schmuck, which you say that to an actual native Yiddish speaker and it's the equivalent of saying, you know, excuse me, but cock. You know, it's, it's saying cock or prick uh, at the very least. And, um, you know, people who are, who are raised in nice, uh, uh, responsible Yiddish-speaking households will be uh, somewhat shocked to hear that spoken in public. Um, but uh, it, the word schmuck gets circulated in American culture absolutely freely. My favorite example is I found a presenter on the QVC uh, shopping network who says the word <laughs> schmuck. You, know, you, oh, can, really? you can say it anywhere. You can say it in front of kids. You can say it in, on billboards. You can say it anywhere. It just has absolutely no um, uh, connotation of dirtiness in English. So we're talking about Jews and their comfort level with obscenity. Where does the question of Jews and modesty fit in all of this? As I as I looked at the question of Yiddish literature and and the obscene, and I looked for examples of um, censored texts or sexually explicit texts in Yiddish, what I found was Yiddish literary critics often using a language of modesty uh, to talk about uh, the way that sex was treated uh, in their in their in their literature, and I thought that was quite interesting because the other place where I had seen um, discussions of uh, uh, of sexual modesty coming up was uh, in the 90s and 2000s, uh, there were all these orthodox figures uh, thinking about and writing in a public way about, about the question of modesty. And I, and I just wanted to think about how um, Jewish ideas of modesty and a history of sort of halachic and rabbinical ideas about sex might play out or relate to the discourse I was talking about. So, you know, what is important to be said is that it's not that Jewish law is is really free in its thinking about obscenity. What you call nivel peh uh, in in uh, halachic discourse, I mean, which goes back to the Talmud, um, is definitely prohibited. There's no question that um, the Talmud prohibits. There's a there's a, a line from the Talmud where uh, let me see if I can read it for you. Uh, the, there's a, a rabbi quote in the Talmud who says that even though everyone knows why a bride enters the bridal canopy, it is a punishable offense to speak obscenely about what follows, right? So the idea is uh, the, the rabbis of the Talmud understood that there are, there are polite and impolite ways to talk about sex and they were very much on the polite side. Um, but what fascinates me, what fascinated me to find was that when, you, when I found orthodox um, – folks talking about modesty, people like Wendy Shalley or Shmuley Boteach who had you know, a big bestseller in Kosher Sex, um, the whole funny, s- strange thing about that movement to sell orthodox modesty to a wider American audience was that they did it in this incredibly sensationalistic and uh, almost sexually free way. Um, I went through uh, Wendy Shalley's book about, about modesty where she tries to make the case that orthodox modesty standards are the sort of cure to the hypersexualization of young women, you know, writ large in America. And there are all these like 
crazy scenes where she's talking about the rapes of young of young girls and all these uh, horrible scenes uh, in schools. And uh, she's using all this kind of hypersexed language to make the argument uh, for modesty. And it struck me as uh, a very strange kind of uh, way to uh, argue for modesty, but that made a lot of sense given uh, some of the history of the way that Jewish culture has always dealt with these questions, which has always been a little bit two-sided. There are, you know, as much as the Talmud uh, expresses, um, has that, you know, has that moment where it says there's a, a proper way to talk about sex. There's also the very classic moment in the Talmud that a lot of people have heard about where a student is hiding under his teacher's bed um, uh, while uh, his teacher has sex with his wife and his teacher catches him and the student comes out and he says, what are you, and the, the teacher says, what are you doing? And he says, well, this is Torah too. I have to learn. Um, and so there's a way in which the Talmud presents sexuality as something, you know, incredibly important um, and something we need to talk about, even if it also has um, uh, uh, there are there are other ways in which it uh, uh, tends towards uh, censorship or euphemism. So I think that there's this interesting uh, double-sided nature to the way that Jews always uh, end up uh, talking about or using sex. And you see that as much in the 1990s as in uh, uh, the Yiddish literature of the 1920s. Much has been made of this new study that just came out from the Pew Center. Uh, and the study suggests that American Jews are continuing to assimilate and become less Jewish in many ways and leaving behind any traces of their Jewishness. I wonder if that is borne out in your analysis of Jews and obscenity at all. You know, as I was wrapping up the book, I wanted to think about the question of why people like Sarah Silverman and Larry David still seem to be having so much fun with obscenity, right? Like it's something that Sarah Silverman really seems to enjoy. Um, I, I don't know if you remember the end of the third season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, uh, crescendos with this incredible barrage of taboo language that's you know just so gleeful and so much fun and so strange. And I wondered if if there's anything really to say about it or if that's just such a part of American pop culture at this point that um, they're just doing what everybody else is doing or if there's a if there's a reason or a way that Jews are you know com more committed to obscenity than, uh, than than anyone else what I what I came up with thinking about those figures and others you know in the last 10 years or so is that um, when you look at who's Who's against obscenity now in America? When you look at you know who's trying to pass laws through Congress to censor the in internet or things like that, it's mostly evangelical Christian groups um, and uh, or it's uh, people allied with evangelical Christian groups. And it strikes me that one of the uh, ways to understand Sarah Silverman's obscenity or Larry David's obscenity is that especially because evangelical Christians are too slick and careful now to uh, make Jews uncomfortable. They, you know, they are very, they love Jews. They want to get Jews involved. One of the ways you can reject that uh, sort of force in mainstream American culture and also just the sanitization of American culture, the family friendliness of this sort of market economy that that seems to like take over all culture where everything has to be PG-13 um, is by swearing a whole lot. Um, there's, a, there's this great quote by um, a writer, a really interesting writer, not so well known, named Arthur Cohen, um, who was a uh, both like kind of a theologian and a novelist. And he said this as early as the 80s where he said, um, the real curse in a sanitized culture would be clean Jew. I would be insulted by being thought a clean Jew. And I think that there's a way in which what uh, what Larry David, what Sarah Silverman are doing is saying they don't want to uh, conform to the 
both Christianizing and also uh, sanitized a market culture of you know uh, that that we have uh, now for for so much of our our uh, television and you know general culture. Well, let's go out with that clip of Larry David from the end of the third season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Before we listen, what do we need to know? Can you set it up? Yes. So this is this is something that he's been building through the entire season. So in this season of Curb, Larry uh, is uh, investing in a restaurant with a bunch of his friends. And the last episode is the grand opening of the restaurant. And it turns out the chef of the restaurant has Tourette's. <laughs> so he just involuntarily screams out uh, obscenities. And earlier in the episode, and it's an open kitchen at the restaurant, and earlier in the episode, Larry's been at a school where he sees a bunch of kids with shaved heads, and what he realizes is that one of the kids had to undergo chemo and so had to shave his head, and all the other kids shaved their heads in solidarity. So Larry comes to the restaurant. All his friends, hundreds of people are there. It's it's all going great, and then the chef screams out a barrage of horrible words, and what Larry realizes is that the, the, the brave and... Uh, heroic thing to do is to show solidarity with the chef. And, well, you can hear what happens. Scum-sucking motherfucking whore! Cock! Cock! Jism! Grandma! Cock! Bum! Fuck! Turd! Fart! Cunt! Piss! Shit! Bugger! And balls! Damn it! Hell, crap, shit! You goddamn motherfucking bitch! Fuck you, you car wash cunt! I had a dental appointment! Palatio cunnilingus French kissing! <laughs> Rim job! Right! Piss! <laughs> fucking, fucking, fuck, fuck! Josh Lambert, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Josh Lambert is currently a professor of English at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. His new book is called Unclean Lips, Obscenity, Jews, and American Culture. It's out from NYU Press. You can find out more about the book on our website, tabletmag.com. What do you think? Obscenity? Good for the Jews? Bad for the Jews? Tell us what you think. Post your thoughts on our website, tabletmag.com, or email us at podcast at tabletmag.com. And be sure to share this podcast with everyone. It's very easy to do with SoundCloud. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm Sarah Avery. So glad you could give a listen, and we hope you'll join us again. 